Hello, I'm Evans Barajas, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. On this podcast, my guest is conductor and teacher David Efron. David Efron is a Cincinnati native who went on to worldwide fame as a conductor and a teacher and made a wonderful return to Cincinnati in 1968 with a legendary set of performances of the Tales of Hoffman, whose cast included Placido Domingo, Beverly Sills, and Norman Trago. But along the way, he served for a long time at places like the New York City Opera, the Opera in Cologne, a teacher at the Curtis Institute and Indiana University, to name just a few. He's a wonderful raconteur, and along the way, we'll learn about the many people who intersected his path and who helped him become the artist he is still proudly today. David, you're a native Cincinnatian. What is your what is one of your first recollections of Cincinnati as a kid? Well, frankly, what I remember most are the summers at the Cincinnati Opera. I started going to the <laughs> uh, to all of the rehearsals because, uh, as you know, my father was concertmaster of the orchestra, and he took me. I think I was four years old when I first saw Bohème. It was a rehearsal with Albanese was singing. Oh and uh, I remember that it was so real to me that I came home and told my mother that uh, somebody died at the opera today <laughs> because it seemed so real. <laughs> and that was like the beginning of a love affair between the zoo opera and, and, and between the, the opera and me, because I, I then went to every rehearsal that there was. And when I got a little older, I went to all the performances as well. What are some of your earliest recollections of the zoo experience itself? What was it like going to an opera there? Yeah, well, I didn't realize actually till I got a little older how special it was. I mean, it, you know, when you do things as a child, you uh, mostly take it for granted, and then, then I realized that the, there was nothing like the opera at the zoo. Uh, first of all, it was an open air theater, as you as you know, and. Um, the, you could hear the animals at times during rehearsal. I remember hearing lions and tigers and sometimes an elephant. And, and you got one got used to that, so there wasn't really an interruption. It just just kept going. And uh, and I just thought that, especially in the evenings when the performances were, which I experienced later on, there was a special feeling about that place. Uh, there was not; a, it was not a beautiful theater nor did it intend to be, but it was almost like a community uh, special place where where you could hear opera and, and it was like sold out every night. And um, it, it was a genius, I guess, who decided you should have opera at the zoo. And uh, I think it's probably the only place in America, perhaps the uh, world, where where you have opera at the zoo. And of course they had major singers from the Met, and other places, and they had a full-time chorus, and uh, of course, the Cincinnati Symphony was in the pit, although there wasn't much of a pit. You could actually see the players from the audience, because the pit was almost on chair level. What was it like watching Maestro Kleva conduct? We have some photographs of him. He's left us some, of course, incredible recordings of complete operas, and everybody's favorite accompanist in the recording studio. What kind of a conductor was he? Well, first of all, he was my first hero. Um, he he was the, the kind of conductor, a combination of 
those who were educated in, in Europe and came from Italy who knew that Italian repertoire, especially backwards and forwards. And uh, when he got up to conduct, it was incredibly clear what he wanted. And it was very much in style. He also was very good at French opera. And I think he used Cincinnati uh, as a place where he could conduct repertoire that he ordinarily was not assigned in New York. Um, He was an authoritarian in that he insisted on the things he wanted, and he could get very, very, well, for want of a better word, nasty in, in, in the way that most conductors could do in that time period. Now, now of course, you can't uh, do anything like that. I mean, it was all for the sake of the music. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not excusing some of his actions. I mean, I saw orchestra players cry, and I saw singers cry, but he was able because of his knowledge and because of his talent as a musician to give inspirational performances uh, one after another. And I I know that the members of the orchestra respected him tremendously, although there there was a certain fear inherent in his presence. How did your dad, the the legendary concertmaster of the CSO for 25 years, how did your dad uh, interact with Clava? Did they have a pretty good relationship? Yeah, they had a great relationship, actually. Uh, He admired Clava a lot. And in fact, uh, he told me that Clava tried to get him to leave Cincinnati and go to the Met. Um, Hmm. And uh, also, I, I should add, because it's part of the story, George Zell Uh, tried to convince him to come to Cleveland, (laughs) but he was a family man and uh, he was also a competitive musician. But first of all, I think it was his family that was important to him. And, and so he decided, I I don't, I can't, my job here is stable. I never know. He said, I don't know what Zell is, if he's going to like me on Tuesday, if he that does like me on Monday, and and I don't want my children to be raised in New York. So he stayed in Cincinnati, but he had some offers, and he was very close to Clay, but that I do know. Tell me a little bit. Every concertmaster has their own style, and you've worked with scores, if not hundreds of them, in your career. What were some of the hallmarks of, hallmarks of your father's style as a concertmaster? Well... The thing I remember the most was he played with a beautiful sound, and he his playing was really heartfelt. That's the that's how I would describe his playing. In fact, after the uh, act, I think it's Act Two of Faust, the tenor solo, which has a, a violin, big violin solo in it, he. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was Eugene Conley who sang it most every summer. And he gave my father solo bow, which was um, because it it was really part of, he he was, it was to cry for sometimes. It was so beautiful. Uh, As a human being, he cared deeply about his colleagues. But again, in the way he was reared and the way things were in those days, he could be very hard on his colleagues. And, um, I think uh, it was um, it was a time period where concertmasters also were more 
authoritative than they were collegial uh, mm-hmm. with their players. But he cared deeply about his players. He helped a lot of players. I, I still get emails from people saying, oh, I played in Cincinnati Symphony when I was 19 year, years old, and your father was so kind to me. Um, yeah, I, I knew that already. I think that's that's great. So was his training of the of the Russian school? Well, you said he had such a beautiful sound. What was his own uh, training background? Well, his training was uh, uh, in Prague and in Vienna. Although he he was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, but he got <laughs> a special special Juilliard scholarship, as I understand it, and went to Prague and Vienna. And this was wow. prior to the war. This was, I think, he was there from thirty three to thirty six. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Amazing he also, he, he studied a lot. I think one of his mentors was Robert Perutz, who I don't know much about him, but he, he taught in Cincinnati. Um, in fact, it was the uh, time where parents would often uh, scale their lives completely to a very gifted child. In other words, if the child had some gift in music, Parents would actually move to the place where they thought th- that child could have the best teacher, and that such was the case with my father, who, who studied with Robert Perutz, and then was brought was brought to Cincinnati. The whole family moved to Cincinnati because of my dad. Sounds that somewhat similar, because I, if I recall right, your sister was a classmate of James Levine at Walnut Hills, and uh, the, the Levine family story is quite similar in uh, in, in terms of the the sacrifices they made for their yeah. son Jim. Exactly. My my wife was a classmate of uh, your wife. Sorry, Jimmy. not your sister. Yeah. yeah. As far yeah. as I know, I don't have any sisters. But uh. <laughs> um, so you're you brought up in a musical family. You're I exposed was, yeah. to opera at an early age, but you you start with the piano. How did that happen? Well, I actually started with the violin. I played violin for six years, from the age of six to twelve. Study with my father would had certain advantages and also disadvantages. Um, <laughs> I actually am grateful for that time because when I uh, conduct, I uh, know something about strings, and that's one of the downfalls of, of conductors who haven't had an experience with string instruments. Uh, I don't think you can uh, explain much to string players if you don't know something about it. So I was fortunate that I did learn something about it. I started piano at a late age. I started at uh, 12 or 13. Uh, I think it was more important to my parents that I study music than it was for me. Um, I was not uh, the type of child that was uh, drawn to music so much that I couldn't live without it. That came later in my life. But hmm. uh, I was, um, I, I rode my bicycle around Cincinnati. <laughs> That's what I did a lot. I played sports and um, I wasn't terribly serious about music until actually till I went to college. And then studying with Benning Dexter really changed my idea. And uh, I worked at the, in the opera department also at Michigan. And uh, yeah, I, I got a good taste of it. And, uh, and I fell in love with becoming a musician. And thank goodness my father and mother instilled wonderful qualities of devotion to music and how important it was to really be disciplined. And that has helped me immensely throughout my career. 
So at your years at the University of Michigan in the late 50s and up to 1960, was Josef Blatt already on the faculty? Was he yeah, he was. That? Yeah. Another, he, another, of course, stalwart at the Metropolitan Opera earlier in his career. That's um, right. Was it from Blatt you got the conducting bug? How did conducting aspirations enter your life? You know, although I started out as a... a coach in the opera house and and did a lot of accompanying the first person i accompanied on tour in when i came to new york was george london so i was fortunate to play with people wow. like that and uh did a lot of coaching and uh but the conducting bug as, as you call it is really starts from my days at the opera um mm -hmm. When I when I because as I told you the the pit was was actually at audience level and you could see the conductor in a way that you can from most pits and I was just mesmerized by all of the conductors especially Kleber and that's where I first got my interest but you know times have changed today it's so very very important for to build a career by networking in our day i won't say that networking wasn't important it was important but that was not the emphasis on making a career um the emphasis actually was uh, drilled into our heads about uh, being completely prepared and what that really meant um and and so I, I didn't make any effort particularly. I've been very lucky. I didn't make any effort particularly to uh, start a career as a conductor. It just kind of evolved. <laughs> and and wow. I then I guess you could say I, I really got interested in it when I started conducting. So <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not one. I, I have to say I've been incredibly lucky because I did not plan my career. You know, you, uh, many conductors do. Uh, they have a timetable. When they're 30, they want to do this. When they're 35, they want to do this or that. I, I never thought in those terms. I thought when I started professionally as a musician, I just loved being around it. I love making music. I love to strive for the highest possible performances level. And that was really my DNA. I didn't, I didn't uh, really think in terms of career with a capital C. Did you uh, did you get to observe some rehearsals at the zoo as a kid as well? What were rehearsals like in those days, and where did they take place? Well, the rehearsals took place in the pavilion, uh, just as where the where the performances took place. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, very interesting because you know there were a lot of people visiting the zoo. It's a very famous zoo, as you know, and uh, mm -hmm. people were visiting the zoo that they had no interest in coming to the opera, but they would hear this music and they'd come by and they'd stand there and listen and they'd talk amongst themselves. So it was kind of a, a play within a play. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was. was, very, was it was like no. It was like no other theater. Um, <laughs> Was rehearsal time fairly generous, or were things done, you know, quite in a compressed manner? Yeah, I mean, I think they were certainly more generous than they sometimes are in today's world. Um, uh, I know that when they did a piece that they weren't, that they didn't know. Uh, in fact, the Hoffman I conducted in 1968. I don't know if they ever played it, and I had two, I believe, two run, uh, two uh, 
run-throughs where I could just work with the orchestra, a reading rehearsal, that's what it was called. And, and yeah. uh, so I would say that the rehearsals were more on the generous side because you were working with people who had the highest uh, idea of what music making was. And most of these people probably in that day would not have come and worked there unless they could have proper rehearsal time. Yeah. It's fascinating if that, that in, it sounds like a little bit like your conducting career almost crept up on you because here you are at the University of Michigan, you go on to get a master's from IU, still in piano performance, but are you already conducting when you're in college and in graduate school? Yeah, I conducted, I began conducting in uh, at IU because um, at that time, the conducting professor was Tibor Kozma, also from the uh, originally from the Met, and uh, the, we had, as you know, uh, IU for centuries—not really, but for for many many years—had performances of operas every Saturday evening in in the small town of Bloomington. Um, wow. <laughs> Uh, we on Wednesdays at that time would give a performance in the evening in Indianapolis of the whatever opera we were performing in Bloomington at, at the time. And in the afternoon of that Wednesday, they had a matinee of uh, most of the opera, sometimes cut down a little. And Cosma allowed me uh, to conduct two or three times and uh, maybe a little more. I don't remember exactly, but that was my first entrance to conducting was here at IU. So what are some of the first things you recall about the, the uh, sort of the amazing thing about conducting opera and keeping both an orchestra and a cast of singers and a chorus all on track? Were there some, uh, some interesting and hard and maybe even funny lessons you learn in the heat of battle as a young conductor? Well, there were some funny lessons. I, I again, I was uh, very fortunate because I had coached so much, and I knew, I understood singers and learned a lot from singers, actually. And of course, uh, growing up in a household with an orchestra player, I kind of uh, knew something about the orchestra too. So there, there was never for me any kind of issue about coordination of stage and pit and choruses and that, that, that wasn't a consideration. Um, it's more of a, uh, of a something that it, it just comes upon you. For example, if somebody gets off in a performance uh, you're supposed to get them back on. And I, I was very fortunate. I had the ability from very early on to be able to uh, correct something very quickly, uh, almost without people noticing, because I was just incredibly flexible. And uh, I understood singers and I understood the orchestra. So I don't remember anything happening with me. I do remember something happening with other conductors. I remember once a, f uh, a, a performance of Faust in New York where the chorus, for some reason, skipped the repeat in the... Oh, no. <laughs> and, and the conductor, I mean, the, what, what can you do? Nothing, really. So uh, they, they got back on. I'm glad the conductor was Rudell because he was great at that. I learned a lot from him also. And now that I think about it, if we have a little time, I do have a story. Please. And that is during a performance of Rigoletto uh, at the City Opera uh, in the famous 
quartet in Act Four. Uh, we had a tenor that day, really good voice, but not much skill in a, in a musical way. He, he didn't know exactly when to come in. He would be perfect if you cued him for every entrance. But if you didn't cue him, he, wouldn't have, he would have no idea when to come in. But he did marvelously for the first three acts. We did it in four acts. Uh, and and I even went backstage after the second act and said to him, you're, you're really great. Because the orchestra players uh, I, in, in New York were very, very kind to me, and I was close to them, I think, uh, partially because I was the youngest one there. Um, and the concertmaster had come to me saying, who's, who's singing the Duke this afternoon? And I told him and he said, oh boy, no, no, not him. He's never gotten anything <laughs> right. These have been the worst performances of the season. I, well, that's very nice to tell me at five minutes to two, you know, because I have to go in and conduct it in five minutes. But but um, it, this guy did terrific. And I knew I had to cue him. And then I put my hand up uh, to stop him every time his, his, his time was up when he, when he, when he, when he uh, sung the uh, part that, that we were in and he would stop. And then when it was time to sing again, I'd cue him and he'd sing. Well, we got to the famous quartet, which is so famous that if there's a mistake made, um, I think most of the audience would know something was wrong, but, and this was monumental. What he oh, no. did was skip two pages <laughs> in the middle of the quartet, <laughs> two piano score pages. We had a marvelous cast, thank God. They were, uh, I'll tell you who was in the cast um, uh, Carol Rolandi, um, mm-hmm. uh, John Andre, uh, what, what did she? Jana Rolandi. Jana Rolandi. She was a student of mine, so I know her as Carol. But uh, Jana uh, was uh, Gilda. Uh, I think it was uh, Jane Shalos, and it was uh, Richard Fredericks. Oh, my God. And this guy who will remain nameless, who was, and it was like, a mess. There wasn't anything I could do. I, but fortunately I'm relatively calm, especially when there's a problem. This was the wor- worst thing that ever happened to me. And the only thing I can remember. And in the middle of that debacle, the concert, as I heard his voice and he said, I told you it was going to be this way, David. So <laughs> this is in the middle of the performance. Um, but I think this would be the time to mention also that the city opera of the days I was there, and I was there from 1964 to 82, uh, in and out from about the from 72 to 82, I would uh, uh, come in as a guest, but I was there every season, and um, it was I, it's very difficult to explain, and it's even more difficult to understand what a phenomenal company that was, and I don't mm-hmm. mean only artistically. Uh, especially in the day, the the times we live in now, it it has come back to me that we were really a family in in a way where it it manifested itself in that every person from the most important artists to the supers to the uh, members of the chorus to the orchestra even it was like a family and we were willing without even questioning to put in many many 
extra hours. I mean, during the season, we would work sometimes from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Nobody ever complained. We also, it was led by Julius Rudell, who had a magnificent way of being a boss, but also being incredibly supportive of everyone and being terribly honest. Uh, so you knew where you stood. You knew if you did such and such, it wasn't good. And, and what you were supposed to do, it was all, I don't think it was ever articulated, but you just knew. And you were welcomed into really what a family was. I've never seen another example of that in any opera house where, where I've worked. So this was this is my model of how it should be in an ensemble and in a working situation in an opera house. Um, you had some exposure early on to a great and underappreciated opera conductor in this country because if people know him, they know him from the end of his career and a great twilight appointment as the music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra. But one of the great European opera conductors was Wolfgang Savalisch. And if I remember right, very early on in your life, you went and assisted him in Cologne, did you not? I did, yeah. I, I assisted him assisted him in Valkyrie. Um, and it was a revelation because uh, he was a really um, sensitive and caring human being uh, and also was one of these conductors who was incredibly calm and never yelled. I can't remember him ever uh, yelling at anybody, but he was, you know, he was not very famous in this country, but he was quite famous in Europe, especially in Germany. Um, what my, my, uh, uh, introduction to him was such that I, I got a Fulbright scholarship after uh, leaving Indiana, and that Fulbright uh, specified that I would go to Cologne and study with Sabalish at the Hochschule. Well, mm. unfortunately, <laughs> when I got there, he had resigned from the Hochschule because he was going the next year to Hamburg. Um, mm. And and I never did get to study with him, but by a quirk of fate, I ended up that year in in Cologne working in the opera house, and uh, and and there that's when I met Savalish, and it was interesting too. He later on, maybe fifteen years later, my agent got a call from Savalish saying he wants you to come to Munich, where he was uh, general music director. He wants to talk to you. And I said, oh, that's really great. They said, it's not only great. They said, if Savalish asks for you, that's unheard of. So I went down. I had a lovely discussion with him. I don't know if he wanted to hire me. I assumed that was the case. He never did hire me. But we had a lovely talk. And um, he was a very, very uh, lovely man and really knew his opera and symphony. And I talked now to colleagues of mine who were members of the Philadelphia Orchestra when he was the music director and to a person, they, they speak with, with reverence towards yeah. him. He was, a, he was an adored maestro. Yeah. So how, so you're, you're on your way as a, as a budding young conductor, you're beginning to get some work. How does New York city opera come into your life? Does it, was this a conscious effort on your part or did you, did it sort of sneak up on you as you say, so many things have already in your young career? 
yeah, yeah, you mean the the city opera? How that came about? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I was in Cologne, and I got a call. I can't remember. A number of people had recommended me to Rudel, and he was actually in Hamburg at that time. And he said, "Yes, I'll, I'll have this this kid in uh, audition for me, and he needs to come to uh, my hotel to meet me at uh, 11 a.m. on such and such a date." Well, I was driving, and there was a traffic jam, and long story short, I missed the audition. <laughs> so I, so I, uh, his wife came down and said, "Oh, he was waiting for you, so forth." I said, "When?" Can I can I wait for him? Will he come back? He said, yes, he'll come back in about four or five hours. You can wait for him. And I did. And thank God he, he was kind enough to uh to to audition me then. And and that's how I got to City Opera. And it were your first couple of seasons at City Opera still at the old city center. Were you part of the move to Lincoln Center? I, I was part that? of the move. Yeah, what was the that first, like? Moving from the sort of the the uh, the 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 environs of a, a rather creaky old theater, but one that had you know everybody loved, to this uh, this shiny new object up uh, up on the Upper West Side. Yeah, it was exhilarating. Uh, it was like it was like moving from a log cabin to a mansion <laughs> and and it was <laughs> it, we, we would go up there before the season started we would go and test the acoustics of the stage so we'd bring uh well i remember playing for uh tragel and sills uh, when they came up there before we even opened just to see how it felt um the the uh, the log cabin on Fifty Sixth Street was was home, but we adjusted quickly to the large theater, and and uh, it didn't change our mo at all. I mean, we were still a marvelous company and a, still a family organization, as I pointed out before. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it had it had a much larger stage, and it had a much larger uh, auditorium. So, so the things that we could do stage-wise were much different from what we had to do on a small stage. So, yeah, that. Do, those and do I re- and do I recall that this production of the Tales of Hoffman, which you eventually came to do in Cincinnati. Did it originate at City Opera? Was it start? Um, did it start at the at the New York City Center? Uh, not yeah. City Center, but Lincoln Center? No, it, it, yeah, it started at Lincoln Center. Um, and it was a it was that production, although I I somehow found the program the other day from the nineteen sixty eight production in Cincinnati. And I see that it was staged by Hugh Thompson. Um, and uh, Hugh Thompson, I think at that time was also stage manager as well as, uh, uh, as one who staged some operas, but at any rate, this was not a Hugh Thompson production. This production was brought from the, the city opera, a very, uh, interesting production staged by Capobianco, Tito Capobianco. And, mm-hmm. um, that, that got a lot of publicity and a lot of bravos. And uh, it was a marvelous production, very different. And, and of course, the cast was was stellar, more than stellar. Uh, hmm. That cast was Beverly Sills, Placido Domingo, and Norman Trago in New York. And that's the same production that we did in Cincinnati. 
You mentioned legendary names, and I would love if you wouldn't mind spending a moment recalling Norman Tregel, because uh, someone who died far too young, obviously everybody knows who Placido Domingo and Beverly Stills are, but I fear that the memory of Norman Tregel fades very quickly. What was he like as a person as an, and as an artist in your yeah. recollection? I think you're very astute, and I also struggle with that because I was extremely close to him. You, you remember, I was ex- very young, the youngest person there, and and uh, people took me under their wing, uh, among, not completely, but uh, one of the people who, one of the reasons I got to conduct that Cincinnati production was Norman. Norman recommended me, and I got to conduct some things in New York that maybe I wouldn't have if it hadn't been for Norman. Norman was a down-to-earth, completely down-to-earth human being without any ego as far as a singer is concerned. I mean, he this, this it was important to him, and he he struggled with with his own artistry because he was he was probably the greatest singer actor in an opera house that i have ever seen and um he brought such realism to every character he did but he was two different people he was one on the stage and two off the stage i knew him off the stage as well as on the stage um and he was you could go to Norman, and I did many times, seeking advice, uh, seeking uh, advice sometimes on how to treat certain artists, and he he never sh- shunned away from that. He always was there for me, and I I I, I miss him. I feel very close. I'm not the only one who misses him because when some of us get together from the old city opera, we talk about Norman. Um, uh, he was such an artist that when he was on stage, like in Boris Gudinov, the people of the chorus and the other artists would be scrambling for a place backstage to be able to see the stage so they could learn from this guy who was a natural actor. He, he, I don't know. It just was natural for him. I think one of the, the, the issues with Norman, why today he isn't, uh, uh, thought of in the same breath as some of the other, uh, fine singers is because, First of all, he isn't recorded very much, but more yeah. so, his, his the timbre of his voice was not conducive to to recording. You had to hear it in the theater, and and it was, I won't say it was harsh, but the it, it was not always. <laughs> It wasn't, he, he was, if you think lyricism is singing legato and mm-hmm. singing uh, s- singing with feeling, yes, he had that more than anybody. But, but the sound of his voice, the timbre of his voice was, uh, I, I'm going to exaggerate just to make a point. One could say it was gravelly at times. And that mm-hmm. kind of voice does not does not bode well in recording. So he had not made many recordings. And in the theater, it was a different thing. 
you know. And uh, and he was a man of physically small stature. Yet people I talked to who say they saw him said that he looked six feet tall on stage. It's quite remarkable his his magnetic uh, dramatic personality. Um, because he, you're right, he was he wasn't a very tall, and he was a very slight man uh, from the photographs that I've seen. Well, he wasn't. I, I would say Norman was uh, was. Five eleven, six feet, something. He wasn't a oh, short so man. Normal height, yeah. Yeah, he was That's a very thin man, and yeah. uh, sometimes you'd think he'd be wasting away. But if you smoke three packs of cigarettes a day and then sing opera, that yeah. wasn't the thing that the doctor would recommend for you. And uh, so, so you know, he was a heavy, heavy smoker, and. Uh, but but the the way his the fact that his body was so thin and athletic really was a, a very good thing for him as an actor and he he could do a lot of things with his body that uh, most people couldn't do and he used that on stage so and and We're he was no I was just going to finish up and say that that um, as a portrayer of of a role he brought such realism and life to any role like if you play if you play the toreador in carmen and then you play uh, uh figaro in figaro and then you play boris gudnov and then you play uh something like uh, uh um what uh, Oh, I can't remember. No, Mephistopheles for one thing. Let's yeah, let's it, take it, you know one of it or the villains in Tales of Hoffman. It's a it yeah, is huge play, range. Right, Hoffman. They are so different. Those roles that that we've named, uh, yeah. they're incredibly different. But yet he would be that person on stage, and it would bear no resemblance to any other role. Uh, where many singers, you see, they they have certain uh, movements and uh, ideas that the it sometimes looks like it could be one or two different roles but not with norman it was very clear what role he was playing that that famous tale go ahead please no i was just you're 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 making me uh, very nostalgic and emotional because this man meant so much to so many of us i learned more about about what it really was to be an artist from Norman. And yet, as you pointed out, he's not remembered as much as you and I think he should be. And yeah. Well, as I think you hit the nail on the head. The recorded legacy in the studios is very slender. Thank goodness we have the complete recording of Mephistopheles yeah. on EMI with Julius. Uh, that's, right. a, that's a legendary uh, impersonation on disc. And thank goodness also for places like YouTube now, because a lot of the live performances are are at oh, least yeah. available in, in bits and pieces. But what sure. I would give for, you know, a complete Susanna or a complete Boris Gudunov or yeah, that, a studio that, recording of the of, of of some of his other great roles. And when yeah. you conducted that when you conducted the Tales of Hoffman here in English, I've I of course there there is a famous pirate recording of it. And I to my astonishment, it was in English. Um, was that it? Was it? Do you recall? Was it done in English at City Opera as well? Were those the days when everything no. was still pretty much done in English? No, uh, it wasn't at all. It was done in French. Uh, but yeah. did you say that it was done in English in Cincinnati? In in Cincinnati, it's in English, and I, it's the only really? time I've ever heard Placido Domingo sing a title role in well <laughs> Spanglish, but nevertheless, yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> you you pointed out something I didn't remember. I didn't know it was in English. 
Uh, yeah. I thought it was in French. In, in New York, it was always in French. And then we did it in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. as well. So, uh, Reflect, if you would, a little bit about that Hoffman and the, the constellation of working with Sills and Domingo and Tregel and the piece itself, uh, because it's at, it's at once a masterwork and a piece that uh, needs loving care from every producer because there's so many choices you can make, of course. That's right. What's, what are some of your thoughts about Tales of Hoffman? Well, as you said, uh, the first thing I think of is that there's so many ways to stage that opera and to uh, characterize the uh, uh, different roles. Um, what I loved about the production we did was that every role was so clear to the audience of what that person represented, what this person mm -hmm. was. And um, that, that, that was the, the genius of Tito Capobianco. He could do, he could get anything out of a singer and ha have them do things on stage that they never dreamed of. Um, <laughs> but, but he, uh, so, so this production of this opera really is, is the thing that I have in my mind as Tales of Hoffman. Any other production of Tales of Hoffman, which I've seen, although I, I won't criticize it, it wasn't bad production, but this was an incredibly special production. And, and that's why it was so successful, because although this opera is performed in repertoire and is, uh, especially in Europe, is very successful and done many times, in America, it had not, it's not a staple of the uh, of the standard repertoire. And maybe it's uh, during this time when we did this production, it was performed by more opera companies, but it's not like Carmen or Aida, Traviata. And, and um, so that is, of course, a very important time for the production of this opera because it, 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 it made it more important in the repertoire, I think, and if that's mm -hmm. still the case, I, I'm not so sure anymore. So it's um, a tough, it's a tough, it's a tough opera to stage because you have to make the decision yeah. as to whether you have one woman for all three or four ladies. And nowadays, yeah. it's you know Beverly Sills's and Joan Sutherland's don't grow on trees, so yeah, that's, that's a hard right. thing to do. But I think one of the things that I I take away from having had the privilege of listening to your performance of 1968 is the kind of weight and majesty that you were able to bring to the score and elicit from the performers. That doesn't mean it's slow or, or ponderous, but there's a, it seems as though you were able to realize Offenbach's dream of making a genuine grand opera. This, this, you know, this, uh, as it were, this uh, Mendelssohn of the Boulevards, as it were, yeah. finally getting to write his one and only grand opera. Um, it's in, it's a piece that's incredibly touching at the same time. Absolutely, and and um, I'm wondering too. In general, your work as an uh, as an opera conductor, when you're now at the stage of your life where you're hopefully passing on some of uh, what you have learned as, still as a teacher, what are some of the things you speak most often to your students about um, creating? performances that have emotional weight do you have do you talk about that in your in, in your teaching yeah uh, i th i think uh i would say first of all that, that uh, students are notoriously guilty of being able to sing very beautifully but not singing with 
characterization. This is one of the things that, that is very important to teach in schools because, of course, if you're going to be a professional singer, you have to bring characterization to your voice and to your body. Um, so I emphasize a lot the, the combination of acting and singing and, and singing in an emotional way according to whatever the uh, drama is, is trying to say at that point. Um, so I do that, and I think it's very important for languages to, to understand the languages so you can do the, right, the correct inflection. And it's also important for singers. I ask them to make sure they do a lot of reading on the composer and the opera and also history, the time the opera was uh, um, uh, written and how that would influence the composer. In other words, I think a school is for, in general, is to produce opera singers that have a thorough knowledge of many aspects of the stage and history. And uh, because, you know, singers who are young, they only, most of them, focus only on getting a beautiful sound and they're uh, really thinking mostly of their technique, which many of them have to because they're growing their technique. But in the end, you have to be a singer whose technique is natural. Of course, you always think about it, but you can bring a lot of other things to your presentation than just singing some notes. Um, that's the difference between school and professionals. And those professionals, and there have been many of them, who have graduated from, well, say, Indiana and, and Eastman also, where I taught, those students somehow before they even were technically profound, they were able to emotionally say with the voice what had to be said for the character they were portraying. You have been a teacher for as much, almost as much of your career as you have been a conductor. Your teaching begins, what, as long ago as maybe Curtis in 1970, or were you teaching yeah, even before that? Yeah, but isn't... isn't uh, Coaching on a professional level, teaching also, or <laughs> conducting is teaching, yeah. So, of course. so I guess you could say I've always been a teacher, but yeah, but a teacher in a conservatory that began in 1970 at Curtis. So now you are on almost your third generation, really, of, of aspiring conductors and singers, and uh, I hope you've had some influence on budding stage directors as well. What are some of the things you think have changed in your decades of teaching and imparting your knowledge to the next generation? Anything in particular that strikes you? Mm, that's a loaded question. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean it to be loaded. I just think one of the things that if you live a long life in this profession, you you see as, as social mores change, as the yeah. economy changes, as the world changes, people change along with it. Uh, but, you know, Bohem is still Bohem. And Tales of Hoffman is still Tales of Hoffman. But as with each passing generation, they bring something different to their understanding of it or lack of understanding of it. Yeah. And you as a teacher, uh, pr providing that sense of continuity of the traditions, but also responding to the world in which you live. Yeah. I, I think that um, social things have changed a lot. Obviously, they've changed a lot in the world. And thus, they have changed in education. 
and how people make careers, that's all somewhat foreign to me. I mean, I've uh, grown accustomed to it, uh, but uh, it's not the way that that my generation approached being a musician or a singer. Um, I think that uh, people are too quick today to want to become professionals. Uh, I think it's like uh, needs a certain amount of time to grow in the profession. It's like, for example, you know, I read an article this morning and it's true. Everybody is becoming a conductor now. I kind of feel what, what was I doing all those years trying to learn stuff when I could have just gotten up at age five and conducted anything because that's what some people are doing and they're being successful. Um, and I think with singers also, there's, there's a rush to become a professional without having the tools that we thought were important. And if you didn't have those tools, you didn't last very long. Um, and I think also a good thing, uh, a very good thing, is now the role of the singer and the conductor and anybody else in the theater is to have a community uh, relationship where you uh, – where you have to advertise for the productions you're putting on, or you have to talk about opera and you get out into the community. We didn't do much of that. Uh, and mm -hmm. now that's very important because that also influences your talent on the stage. Um, so I think though the, these have been mostly changes that have come about because of social change in this country. So, David, you've had a, a distinguished career on several continents, and you remain lively and engaged and an observer of the musical world and of the world in which we live. And one of the things that strikes me about um, the avenue of your career is that your appointments have always been of considerable duration. You've you've not flitted from place to place, as it were. Um, it sounds as though you're the kind of artist who likes to set down roots, as it were, and make a difference over time. I mean, you've you know you started at IU in 1998. You were at Eastman for over a decade. Curtis, nearly a decade. It seems to be part of your musical as well as personal personality that. You want to be around long enough to make a difference. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I never thought about it while it was happening, but uh, I know you have to, or I believe that you have to stay in one place for a certain amount of time in order to make a difference. And, and I seem to have made a difference early on, and I, I wanted to continue that. And I think it was a good choice on my part. I had offers to go other places, and um, I, I, I declined. Um, so, so I, I, in, in doing so, I kind of have an unusual career that I am probably best known as a conductor who did great things in a conservatory, but I always kept one foot in the profession because I believe that one has to, in order to become a successful, uh, teacher, because if if you don't, if you're only teaching a school, it's like a fairy tale. It can be like a fairy tale and you lose sight of what you can lose sight. Many teachers have about what's really important and how it works in a professional setting versus a school setting. So, so my, my purpose was actually 
to continue the teaching because I enjoyed working with young people, but also to keep one foot in the profession, which I never stopped doing. And in the last 30, 40 years, I conducted a lot of symphony. I have a huge repertoire symphonically because I thought that that was, I, I knew that was uh, lacking in my uh, in my uh, musical history. So, so I purposely took positions where I could conduct symphonic work as well as opera. So, and that's another reason why I stayed in one place a long time because I, I coveted those positions where I could conduct both symphony and opera. The other thing which you may or may not want to put on this podcast is 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 because I, I it was more important to me to have a monthly salary to pay my child support than it was for me to carve out a career and and not know where the next paycheck was coming. So I always had a paycheck every month. Uh, the, the reason wasn't it was kind of silly, but it was uh, realistic actually. So. There's nothing silly about it. For providing for your family is is a very noble thing. And not only that, its byproduct, as you said, was a sort of stability that allowed you to grow in every position you had. Yeah. And I'm also reminded of the fact that if you think back to nearly every single genuinely great conductor of the 20th century and probably even back into the 19th century, most of them started in the opera. Uh, you know, Sell yeah. and Ford Fengler and Carrion and Schulte and so on and so on and so on. What do you think in part an opera conductor brings to his or her work with a symphony orchestra? What are some of the things you learn in the pit under fire that help you in a Tchaikovsky symphony? Hmm. I think what I learned about symphony conducting is that you stay out of their way a lot of the time, uh, that you're <laughs> able to do that. What, in the opera, I said earlier that, you know, I never had any issues, thank goodness, about uh, coordination between stage and pit and all of that. But you still had to be, you couldn't, you couldn't, for a second in the opera, lose your concentration because that's when something w would happen. That they, they do need you in that way. Even if it's only uh, not through gesture, you can be very small gestures, but your concentration and focus needs to be awake all the time. And in symphony, you don't have uh, so many... Uh, different things to worry about it's one unit and those people should have an opportunity to be able to express themselves and at the same time understand what kind of concept you're having that, that you want from the Tchaikovsky symphony um, so it's a little bit more freedom that you don't have in the opera house but it's also it's so hard to explain. I mean, there are so many similarities. Conducting is conducting, and then there are little things that make make a difference. I don't. I don't think over control in 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 symphony work is a good thing to have. You 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 need to let the individuals be be uh, their own personality. That's hard to come by. Um, so you don't. In other words, in the rehearsals, you might stop for 
in an opera rehearsal, you would stop if the singers sang the wrong rhythm, if they sang the wrong notes. In a symphony perform, uh, rehearsal, you have more leeway. It's not as important if somebody plays a wrong note as it as the total thing is even from the beginning of rehearsals. Does that, well, does that you, make any sense? It makes perfect sense. And it also is ties directly back to opera because, of course, uh, yes, you're governed by other things, stage movement and uh, yeah. the individual breathing needs of singers and right. the, the inevitable accidents that happen in the heat of, a, of an operatic performance. But it is all about a sense, a larger sense of continuity. Uh, and I think one of the things that you point out here is that whether it's symphonic music or operatic music, an overarching sense of where where we're going, as it yeah. were, on this journey we're together. And in the one sense, you're more of a benign, uh, as it were, uh, jet pilot, because the plane does a lot of it itself. Right. But in the opera world, uh, it's more like a propeller plane. <laughs> You've got to be on the alert all the time, that, or else you go good. down, or else you go down in the drink, as it were. That's a good <laughs> comparison. And and you yeah. brought up one thing that I think is uh, very important. You know, through the years, I've had the opportunity to talk to many, many singers and many, many orchestra players. I think today, you know, it's sometimes the young conductors. I think they will appear to not know as much as they want to want people to know that that, that uh, but but the thing is it was it's always important to ask people who have more experience than you do you'll learn more than you can in any kind of classroom uh, and all the singers with whom I've spoken have told me almost to a person the the thing that aggravates them the most in an opera performance is that the conductors and evidently there are many of them i didn't do any study on it i'm not gonna uh, i'm not interested in that but they told me that the the thing that aggravates them the most is the fact that conductors of opera do not know how to let singers breathe and what to do with the beat when it's time for a breath and and so they're always being pushed ahead and that's that's not good for a singer it doesn't you well, can't sing your best and that's why great opera conductors make great accompanists and concertos for violinists and pianists because they're always breathing i watch so many of the great conductors and the way that they engage with their instrumental soloists is the same thing yeah. i see them in the pit looking up on stage do you need just a slight more second to catch your breath there as you come around that's the corner yeah. yeah. Well, well, you know, Dave, I, I I should point out also that I played for many years for the eminent uh, soprano Benita Valente in concert, and we we did different programs, but we had a staple of repertoire that she sang. I don't remember Benita ever singing the same way at any concert. There was always she was so instinctive and could improvise she had a thought she would just do it in the concert and that kind of person is uh, i don't think everybody would find it easy to accompany her but i found it not only easy but a lesson in in how to really uh, be uh, able to bring different things to the music at different times you know you never want to really uh, she didn't think of it it was just natural for her um, and that was also a lesson for me to be to to accept the fact that improvisation in a sense was not only okay but it would make the performance even more electric if you will 
Um, so I learned that from accompanying her. And uh, then that, of course, paid dividends in the opera and in the symphonic world. So in, in summary, I've been incredibly fortunate to having been in the right place at the right time for me and in a, in a, also a feeling of um, I, I feel that I've helped a lot of people. And that, in the end, is what's the most important for the older generation to do for the younger generation. Um, pass it on. Exactly yeah, right. Pass it exactly. on. That's the most important thing. And, and you David, know, now that I'm retired, I can delve into some other things. I do a great deal of reading. Um, oddly enough, I read the Hamilton biography that uh, that uh, influenced the the, the uh, the Broadway show, Broadway show, yeah. and I'm I'm learning the Broadway show because I I mean first of all it is awesome I, I I can't imagine the genius that I see up there on the stage and how they put all that together it's intricate it's difficult but more so for me personally I want to learn now some uh, genres. I want to delve into some genres that I haven't had the opportunity to do. So I'm looking at uh, learning learning Hamilton. And uh, some of my colleagues with whom I'm still in touch, said, what, Hamilton? Yeah, we know what that is, but what? You're learning it? It's not an opera. Well, that's why I am learning it. So it's, well, you, uh, are, you are a perpetual student and a lifelong learner, and that's, that's how you stay young. Actually, I, I firmly believe that. And it, it leads oh, me I, into I the part so. of our conversation I that I ask. Yeah. It leads me to the part of our conversation that I ask every one of our participants. And you are welcome to take the Fifth Amendment in any of these questions. Um, okay. What do you have for breakfast generally? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'm a creature of habit as far as breakfast, because I generally have the same thing. I have three hard-boiled eggs. I have coffee. I have three pieces of toast. I sometimes put cheese or liverwurst, which I adore, on the toast. And... That, and occasionally I will have uh, some multigrain cereal. That's my breakfast. That is the most inventive answer of all the 25 or 30 podcasts I've ever oh, asked. Come so, on, thank Evans, you. Really? <laughs> well, you know, you're thing of threes too. That's great. So clearly you're you're a man who has has been through a lot in terms of the the highs uh, the highs of your career, but we all have stress from time to time. How do you deal with stress? Uh, brings me to a story. Um, please. Yeah, uh, I I worked for 10 summers, 10 or 11 summers in Heidelberg, Germany. They had an outdoor festival, and I was the, game, the, the general music director of that festival. And uh, one summer, maybe the sixth or seventh, uh, I was going through a very nasty separation, uh, and I was under a lot of stress. And... But I never looked at stress as being stress. You know, I was around music, and that that the, there's no stress around something you love so much. Well, that wasn't true, but that's the way I thought. And in the middle of a performance of uh, Mozart, uh, Finta Giardiniera, I think, uh, uh, I passed out on the podium. And, oh my gosh! Uh, they had they they took me to the hospital, of course. 
And the doctor said, I can, I'll never forget this. He said, are you under any stress? I said, no, not, not at all. I said, you know, my personal <laughs> life is changing, but, but I, I'm a conductor and I, that's what I do. It's, it's a joy. I don't have any stress. He said, that's like me being a surgeon and saying, I don't have any stress. I do this every day. And I never forgot that because it pointed out to me that, yeah, there must be stress. <laughs> so, but when, when you, when you're, the most important thing when you're in a leadership position is that when there is stress around, you have to uh, make it a priority that you deal with the stress, that you're able to transcend the stress. It's not that you don't have stress. It, a leader has to be able to work within the stress and not show stress to the people with whom he's working Um yeah. So I, you know, you learned that I learned it in New York when you, you know, the city opera for all its greatness didn't get, get a lot of rehearsal. Sometimes they would go on stage in a production and they had never been on stage because we didn't have any rehearsal. And that's where the idea of family came in. We, we transcended all our stress for the good of the family. And that's, wow. that's what you do. That's what what one any performer will tell you the same thing that uh, I think uh, Mr. Serkin told me once that um, uh, any artist who says they're not under stress is is telling a lie. We are all. Under <laughs> now uh, you've talked a lot about people who influenced you, people whom you admired. If you had to single out someone early on in your career who was either a mentor or um, someone you really looked up to, who who would that be? Well, <laughs> there have been a lot of people who have influenced me. Um, I think, well, it would be hard to single out one person. So in, in doing that, I will, uh, in, in saying that, I will give you a couple examples. I think Sabalish would be one of the first ones because he was a real special, gentle, knowledgeable sensitive human being. Um, and that impressed me that he could be in an executive position and not demand. He got what he wanted, but he never demanded it because he didn't demand it. He got it. I never saw many conductors like that prior to him because there weren't many. Everybody was uh, having a personality kick up there. Uh, the, other <laughs> thing is, the other thing, I I'll tell you, Julius Rudell influenced me the most. Because, and I think he is he is seen not properly. He's not seen in the way he really was. I don't know how, how one could have done that. But first of all, he could take a piece of music that was nothing and make a dramatic reading of it that you think it was the best piece ever written. And I, I admired that. The other thing about Julius, you know, he had so many... Uh, balls that he was uh, juggling in his uh, job that he didn't always, he wasn't always able to study the scores in depth or soon enough before the first rehearsal that, that one probably would wish they had that time. So he would come in and, and at a first rehearsal and he would hardly know the piece. But on the second rehearsal, I don't know what happened, but he was telling everybody what to do, and he knew the piece better than anybody. His ability to <laughs> learn something really quick and his ability to make something out of nothing 
And his, I've never worked with or for anybody, well, uh, quite like him, because he also, without being a dictator, he made it very clear what the goals were in any situation. So, wow. uh, and, and he was a great theater conductor, fabulous theater conductor. In fact, you know, he would know everything about the scenery. And when we moved from, we talked a bit about moving from 55th, 56th Street to uh, Lincoln Center. When we moved up there in 56th Street, he would go up on the stage and move a flap or say that the lighting was a little bit off. You know, he knew that as well as he knew everything uh, musical. So we went up to the theater and they had a, a very strong union of stagehands. And he went up to fix something in a big stage. And he, hey, buddy, get off the stage. This is not your realm. <laughs> and so he never did that again. <laughs> but, you know, it, but he could. But, <laughs> yeah. Because he, uh, he had the knowledge. Wow. Yeah, he did have the knowledge. Uh, he's a, But I don't know if people appreciate that. I think we do who worked under that. But, you know, I mean, he... I don't know. It's very interesting to me and probably to you, too, how people's uh, uh, what what people think of people who are in the spotlight sometimes really doesn't match up to the way they really were. You, you would have had to be there to see that. Are you a, a television watcher? Is there a series that you enjoy oh particularly goodness. these days? Oh, my goodness. Well, my wife is a television uh, looker. And um, yeah, because of her. I got interested in some stuff, you know, she likes, uh, she likes things like, uh, NCIS and, mm -hmm. and she, what else does she want? That, that kind of stuff. And, oh, and, okay. uh, and I, I watch, um, I watch sports now. There's not much to see, but I'm, a, I, uh, my wife also, we love sports. So football, basketball and baseball, are our favorites and we're we, we well and of course living in a great co living in a great yeah. college town with a great university that's a, yeah, that's a that natural too, too exactly. yeah um yeah. you clearly have a, a cell phone is there an app on your phone that you use more often than others or one that you find particularly useful well my email app and my telephone app mm -hmm. and <laughs> my whatsapp uh, i would say the whoops whatsapp is the app that i cherish the most because my younger child uh, lives in London. He's a professor at the London Business School, and uh, he and I are very close, but not close enough because he lives in London. I live in Bloomington, so we use WhatsApp and we speak to each other uh, quite frequently. So that's my favorite do you, app. Do you have a favorite musician outside of classical music? Well, right now, it's all those people who are in Hamilton. <laughs> mm -hmm. Makes perfect right, sense. Right now. But, but, you know, yeah. I didn't have much exposure to that. So I can't really say, I can't really say that, that I have somebody outside of, of, of classical music. Last but not least, um, okay. what's, your, uh, what's your elevator speech for getting someone to try opera who hasn't gone to an opera before? Um, a free ticket and a buffet dinner afterwards with a discussion. <laughs> and that is the best answer to that question I've had in all my podcasts. <laughs> David Efron, thank you people, so much. <laughs> and with some people, you know, it's like, 
Okay, okay. So I'll throw in a Reds game too. You can do that, but come to the opera. <laughs> David Efron, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time and your recollections and your wisdom. It's been a joy. Uh, I had a joy too, and I thank you so much for, for asking me to do this. It's been a great pleasure. These podcasts are produced by John Brennan at Sonic Signatures. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Marachis.